when you consider that there are people with skills and resources who are able to game that system, and so that you end up with a very lopsided information diet being presented to you because of that. And in fact, it's easy to get lies in front of people. And because you then consume some of that, then the algorithms then automatically adjust and then you start seeing a flood of that. And then and that's all you see. It's been a pretty low-key start to 2021 for me. Not sure if it's been the same for you almost every year. As um, the earth rotates the sun one more time, I have these ambitions of what I'll do in the new year and I get all amped with goals and objectives and yeah, I found it a little bit harder to do that this year and I guess that's normal. Many of us are feeling a little bit of, I guess, lingering uncertainty around COVID. Despite the fact that we're in a new year on the calendar, it feels much like an extended version of 2020. And for many of us, I think we're still coming to terms with that, that sort of low-grade anxiety. I certainly feel like I am myself. However, having said that, I remain cautiously optimistic about 2021. And there are a couple of projects that I want to speak to you about that are really giving me a lot of hope and instilling a great deal of energy and excitement for what is possible this year. I think all of us have thought differently about how we can create value and how we can build and take advantage of new opportunities in the market. Towards the end of last year, I announced that I'd be launching 48 Hours with a good friend of mine, uh, Victor Dlamini, well known to many of you as a media and communication specialist, somebody who I've crossed paths with many times in my professional career. Uh, we decided to team up and start a social media crisis communications business and have been astonished actually at the positive uh, feedback, uh, not just on the business itself, but also on the wonderful design work, uh, the visual identity that was done. And it would be remiss of me not to recognize that by uh, Dean Olshek and the team at Halo, um, Halo Agency. I'll, I'll add some of these links uh, for 48 hours and Halo in the show notes just so that uh, you can go and check them out if you'd like to. But yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the break thinking about this show and what I'd like to do with it this year. Uh, last year was very much a period of exploration and discovery. I'm just very grateful to you that you're willing to spend time listening to these conversations. And I really feel like the very least I can do is repay that generosity by working hard to constantly improve the quality of the shows, both from a production and a content perspective. The Solid Gold Podcast Studio have been amazing in terms of helping me getting this to sound great, regardless of whether I'm recording in studio or from my study here at home. But to that end, I've also opened up the podcast to the possibility of sponsorship. And I'm very excited to announce that a business that I've long been a fan of and a client of called Platform 45 has come on board as a sponsor for the next six episodes. Platform 45 is a software development company, but there are many software development companies. Platform 45 is not like them. I've engaged with them as a client, as I mentioned uh, a couple of years ago, to build a startup called Fitcal, fitcal.co.za. They also built, coincidentally, the Cerebra Academy interface of the customized learning management system for us. And they really do have a unique level of insight into the human side of product development and an ability, certainly in my experience, to bring even the vaguest idea, uh, which mine often are, to life with like almost wizard-like innovation. Um, it's very rare that you find people that have 
equal parts technical understanding and human insight and Platform 45 certainly is one of those businesses. So I just wanted to thank them, thank Sean and the team for being willing to come on board and support this project. Uh, you can find them at platform45.com um, and I will add that link to the show notes as well. So I've already spoken to uh, Get On Novik and if you didn't have a chance to catch that show uh, last year, it's also on YouTube. Um, and while many people, certainly many businesses, were struggling to make their way through last year, there were a few standout examples of people that sort of went against the tide and, and created new opportunities. Uh, one such example outside of Get On and Lift is uh, the team at Daily Maverick. Many of you will know Daily Maverick from dailymaverick.co.za and their very popular newsletter. I know I'm a subscriber and the events that they run and they, you know, very unique take on the political landscape in South Africa. They're an important player, a significant player, and uh, I'm very grateful personally that they play the role that they do in combating misinformation and disinformation by working really hard to produce better news. And in the midst of COVID and of a increasingly digital world, especially from a media perspective, they decided to launch a newspaper, a paper <laughs> newspaper. And I wanted to speak to Stili Karalambas, the uh, editor and the COO of uh, Daily Maverick, about that decision. And he was kind enough at the end of last year to find time in his busy schedule to have a, an hour-long conversation with me about that. That's what this show is about. Uh, we cover a, a broad range of topics, but it's just fascinating to hear him talk about the impact of this decision on his organization in the middle of a, a very disruptive time. I think they are a bold business. I think they are an exciting business. I think they are, and I use this phrase very cautiously, a purpose-led business in the very best possible way. And, um, you know, Stilly and Branco are just two phenomenal individuals working really hard to make a positive impact in the world and, and specifically in South Africa around them. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did recording it. As always, uh, look out over the next few weeks for a couple of exciting new developments. I'll be putting some announcements on the show here on my newsletter at mikestopforth.com forward slash newsletter. And then, of course, on social media, you can follow me there at twitter.com forward slash mikestopforth or on uh, LinkedIn also forward slash mikestopforth. Without any further ado, or without any further delay, rather, Stili Haralambas. So, Steli, can you talk to me a little bit about some of the unique challenges this year has brought to you guys uh, as an organization and how you've navigated that, not only in terms of, as you said, dealing with a new category of problems, but helping others navigate their way through those problems? Yeah, I think 2020 was testing on so many fronts for so many people, and everyone had to respond to the challenges in, in their own ways. But um, it's something that we did as soon as the you know, we could see the lockdown regulations coming in and um, mm. what there was going to mean for frontline people like our journalists out in the field and obviously having to respond to that, which I think, you know, we all kind of needed to figure out um, how we were going to operate or what we were going to do. But the broader strategies of our business strategies and our growth plans for this year and the way that we operate, we had to relook at all of those and kind of go, okay, do they still apply? Are they still solid? Uh, is this still the direction that we want to go into? Yeah. And, you know, we looked at it and, and considering that launching a newspaper was one of those uh, big ambitions for this year, we looked at all of those and we didn't change a single one. And we were like, 
we're mm. doing everything that we need to be doing and we're just going to press ahead and we'll, we'll just keep our heads down. We, we obviously need to push out a couple of things. So the, the launch date of the newspaper was delayed by two and a half months. And okay. we were you know, busy with the final planning and we were recruiting and all that had to happen remotely. But everything was just, it was kind of, look, these decisions and strategies had been made and done on the basis of, you know, analyzing the market, reacting to the trends that we were seeing, you know, environmental, competitive, political, what resources we had available at our disposal, what skills and it was still kind of, okay, well, nothing changes. Let's just keep going. And I think for a lot of people, that was surprising, mm. especially when we announced we were going to launch a newspaper in, in this um, in this time. And, you know, we had to do a bit of internal selling and just, you know, letting everyone in our team know that this wasn't the, a completely batshit crazy move without any uh, research or without any, you know, uh, a real consideration of what it would mean and how much it would cost and the impact that it would had. And we battled for a decade to try and get a, a digital business model that worked for news. And we were starting mm. to turn the corner. And then all of a sudden, you know, we were unleashing this sort of contrarian move on people. And, and we had more than a few raised eyebrows because we've got a lot of ex-print journalists, um, traumatized people that we are rehabilitating <laughs> um, <laughs> reforming internally yeah yeah and they, they were like what the hell are you doing you know everyone's moving the other way and so we, we had to do some internal selling but once we had explained it people thought we were slightly less mad so i want to pick up on something you said earlier i obviously want to talk about the launch of the paper and, and understand some of the the unique challenges that have come with such a as you mentioned contrarian view uh deliberately swimming upstream in a trend that seems to be going in the other direction i love it but i'm a maverick at heart so um i need you know i would love to hear it uh from your perspective but before we even do that something you mentioned around having plans in place that i think if those strategies have a sense of long-term vision behind it if they are embedded in a sort of five to ten year plan for fruition they're, they're less susceptible to even the most traumatic short-term change and i think a lot of organizations and certainly a lot of leaders and i know i've done this if you are habitually planning in the short term it becomes very difficult to ignore the change in environment in the short term but if your view kind of extends beyond that then it's a simple equation around that, you know, do I imagine that this plan has a lifetime beyond whatever level of, of short-term trauma we've been exposed to? And it seems to me like that's the way you guys think. You've always thought in terms of a much bigger, much uh, longer, for lack of a better phrase, picture. Um, is that true or am I just buttering you up? Um, I did a bit of both, um, but always nice cool. to be buttered up. Um, you know, I, I likened it a little bit to uh, we were playing test cricket and a lot of people were jumping into T20 and mm. it was nice and it was flashy and it was exciting and people thought it would be the end of test cricket and we were kind of, well, no, look, there's still a place for it. There's just, you know, just a new category has been invented and some people still need to be good at test cricket. And that's really the ultimate challenge, right? Mm. That's the, the, yeah. the place where the, the purists and the real exhibition of talent over five days plays out on the field. And there's so much more to it and there's more nuance and there's more opportunity and there's more strategy and there's more, you know, and, and that was kind of, we, we 
we felt like we were playing five day test match and others wanted to jump into T20. And, and uh, I think um, that's kind of how we, we've always played. We've always positioned ourselves to, you know, even when we didn't know what the business model was going to be or how it would land, we knew that the highest level of quality journalism focusing on content that you couldn't get anywhere else, focusing on long form, focusing on investigations, that's mm. the kind of thing that you, you can build an editorial brand around. And once we figure that the, the rest of it out, the business model stuff out, it's going to be connected to this brand that we built, this strong editorial brand. And that's what we just never wavered from uh, when a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the digital upstarts were jumping into clickbait and, you know, all the flashy yeah. stuff without the substance underneath. And I think that's what we yes. never wavered from. And we were willing to experiment around that and to do stuff around that, but uh, knowing that our foundation was built on, on quality journalism. Yeah, there's this complex interplay between the shortening and attention span of the average reader, emphasis being on the word average, <laughs> and the commercialization of more short-term uh, or short-form content that, that's been quite difficult to... It's difficult to figure out who's pulling and who's pushing there, right? Is that uh, more about the way that we consume content today or is it more about how the digital format lends itself towards more bite-sized or best version, bite-sized, worst version, clickbaity types of content? But if the whole trend was sort of moving in that direction for a very long time, and that's been documented and spoken about at length, there's almost a a counter movement, certainly I think from the side of the average reader, and I consider myself one of those people, towards a, a just a deeper desire for a decent three-course meal as opposed to a, a McDonald's burger. As nice as that can be sometimes, uh, when all you're having is McDonald's burgers, it becomes a little bit tedious and there are after effects of that. So are you feeling like as much as you guys are setting a standard and there is a very idealistic and driving and visionary force behind, as you said, this editorial brand that you built, do you feel like customers are also pulling you into that space as well? And what evidence do you have of that? Yeah, look, we look at our readership uh, closely on a daily basis. And, um, you know, we look at daily trends, monthly trends and yearly trends. And we can see that we're continuously bringing in new people this year was we had an explosion of readership. I think all trusted titles around the world saw a massive spike mm. in readership in COVID. Mm. And the trick was, would we be able to keep them? Because that more than doubled, you know, our normal monthly readership from last year at the same time. And, and I'm happy to say that, you know, new people have found us because of the work that we were doing. And then they were like, oh, this is new and this is, meaningful and this is insightful yeah. and this is valuable to me and so and then you've got this funnel that kind of tries to bring them back again and get them to sign up for newsletters and you know and, and keep them coming back and by and large most of those people have stayed and so uh you know the trends that we see that are supporting this move is that more and more people every year you know we've been growing every year for the last 11 years and by significant numbers mm. i think like an average uh, readership growth of 25, 35% every year. And, incredible, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, and and we and we see that we feel like we're still driving at like seventy percent of our capacity because we 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 haven't used any of those flashy tactics. And you know, for a digital news publisher, well, we were digital only up until three months ago. You know, we we underinvested in technology, which is one of our secrets actually. And we mm. we didn't know how it was going to play out, and so we couldn't justify that investment in tech. And so we said, well, then if we can't, then editorial gets it. And we still, to this day, the way we structured, the way that we're lucky to have built the team that, you know, we've got a lot of multi-skilled people that we were still in November, for example, able to allocate 72% of our operating budgets to editorial, which even for a digital publisher is astronomical. Hmm. And that means that we can compete with much bigger organizations. And that's a strategic move. And that's a brave move. And that's something when you, you know, you're talking about looking at the long-term trends and not being sort of hijacked by the short-term demands and playing through the breaks and, you know, not every new shiny thing just derails your, you know, your focus and your attention and your investment and your allocation of capital. Like that requires values and uh, a vision and leadership that's willing to stick to that, even though it feels like everyone else in the world is moving in the other direction. And that's, um, resilience slash stubbornness that I think, you know, uh, our founder, Branko Brickich and I have in abundance is that we are extremely <laughs> stubborn people. Um, but we're lucky enough to be sort of multi-talented and able to kind of, you know, plug the gaps and run lean operations and kind of go, well, look, the world may want that, but does it need that? And I think that's where mm. we are, are continuously having to sort of interrogate uh, what we want to do versus the needs of readers and checking out, you know, uh, whether we have the skills to do that and how can it be funded. And it's, uh, it's something that we interrogate on with every new project uh, and also with, you know, what we want to achieve in this world. And I think we don't want to be just, an, you know, we, profit is not our driver, right? That's not why we exist. Mm. We don't say we want to be the most profitable news publisher in the world. But if we do our jobs well and we achieve our vision, then hopefully there will be a financial benefit as a result of that. Yeah, they say all all progress depends on unreasonable people. So long long may that be the case. <laughs> what is your vision? What is the best for you talk about running at seventy percent capacity? You talk about your motivation being primarily around impact. Can you constitute that vision in a sentence? It, does it exist? Or is it a feeling? No, I mean, we want people who, who spend time with us that they know more and they know better um, after having spent mm -hmm. time with us. And if they do know more and they do know better, that they're able to have better discussions, that they can make better decisions, that they can be more active citizens. Mm. And that with that, that the world can end up, or, you know, or the world that we affect can end up being a, a better place because of that. And, you know, and it starts with that in the way that we do that and obviously in a time of misinformation and disinformation is that it started with, and we put it as the, as the motto, we do that by defending the truth, you know, and, and when the truth was mm. under attack, when the president of the United States would go out and, and have no trouble pushing out 25,000 lies in the time of his office, um, mm -hmm. that, that was the world that we were in. And so like, how do we help people to know more and know better? And well, it starts with defending the truth in this time of mass disinformation and lies and uh, um, and disinformation that's going on. And so, yeah, that's that's our our vision is a world where people do know more and they do know better because of the work that we do. 
So knowing more feels like a relatively easy challenge to fix. And again, because of the wonderful access to technology that, that those of us who are relatively privileged have these days, it's incredible what, what types of knowledge or information we can, we can gather around us and we can assimilate. But this question of knowing better is, is a more complicated one and seemingly increasingly so uh, because there's an incredible amount of accountability I, and I don't know if this is the way you think about it in in terms of, of moral standard or moral standing, or if it's just about providing your readership with as balanced a view as humanly possible. How do you think about helping or empowering your readership to have better conversations? Yeah, and it, it starts by, um, look, first of all, we have a very experienced, uh, we probably have the most experienced newsroom in the history of South African journalism, mm-hmm. which is which is a big claim to make. But when, I, when you look around how uh, most newsrooms have been juniorized, half the permanently employed people in this industry have left in the last decade, that we do now have this massively experienced newsroom. And so we've accumulated and, and nurtured and developed these just incredible people. And so relying on the experience mm. and, you know, so we have interns, but ranging up to people who've been in the industry for 50 years working with us and across that entire spectrum. So it's not having the right people and knowing that, but also knowing that uh, and then taking a view and going, okay, well, what's important today? What's important coming up in the next uh, sort of short to medium term and what's important for the long term? And then... Mm figuring out what that is and going, well, okay, look, this is what we're seeing. And you almost need to be like a social anthropologist to figure out what people need and what is important for them, even though they don't necessarily know it yet. Um, And so what are you going to drive on your editorial agenda that's going to put stuff in front of them and maybe at the expense of other stuff that you want to do? And so you've got to allocate your resources accordingly. And so you, you kind of start there and go, well, okay, it's what's important today? What's the medium term, the long term? What themes are we looking at that are you know specific to South Africa that we need to be focusing on and, and allocating time and people to cover so that our readers who are out there and, and who are have certain values and you want to be active citizens or are leaders uh, and decision makers in government or in business or in health um, and putting that stuff there and making it easier for them to kind of go, okay, this is really useful for me. This is important. I can do stuff with this. And so it's quite tricky to articulate and to bed down in a, in a full strategy document, but, uh, and, and it's something mm. that we're getting better at also because the organization is growing at such a rapid rate that as founders we you know we don't you know we're not as hands-on involved anymore with uh, as many parts of the team and so you have to get better at articulating things like the vision and editorial vision and what you want to achieve and how you want to do that and ultimately all the way down to how you tag articles on your site so that you can use Mm. that data to get better about how you are progressing and making proactive decisions around um, sure. what you com- what you commission and where you allocate your, your resources and pulling all of that together when you've been uh, sort of a, a startup kind of, uh, you know, feels like we're shooting from the hip for a lot of it. Um, but now we, we think, okay, well, we're not a small organization anymore. We're medium-sized yeah. now. All this stuff has to kind of be sort of 
in an oxymoronic kind of way, how do you institutionalize the culture and the vision and that this mission-driven organization that we've, you know, we've, mm. that we've worked so hard at remains that way and that it remains mission-driven and that these values carry on beyond our tenure. And, and so that's something that's really consuming us now. It's like, okay, it's both good for the future, but also good for ourselves now. And unlocking that mm. 30% of performance that I think we're, you know, we, we could still do with our existing operations is by making sure all this stuff sort of, you know, it's all congruent and it's all working together. And it's people, you know, uh, don't have to think about what is the mission in a mission driven organization? You know, what are the values? Mm-hmm. What are the important things that we're trying to achieve? And the, this, you know, what does this vision materialize and look like if we, if we get it right? So all of those things are kind of bundled up in, into a lot of the work that we, we're trying to do now as, as leaders and in terms of, you know, making sure this thing can, can run even if we're not here. Yeah, there seems to be this moment in the life cycle of a business like yours, and, and maybe you're the quintessential example, where certainly for the earlier part of, of that organization's startup life or teenage life, the culture and the direction and the vision of the business is, is disproportionately heavily reliant on your values and your influence as leaders. But the natural byproduct of doing that is that it begins it begins to take on a life of its own. And there's this tension between, and that's a good thing. We wanted to do that. We want the thing to be bigger than any of its constituent parts or even a collection of its constituent parts. But the, the challenge is when that happens, when it becomes its own thing and it takes on a life of its own, sometimes what it becomes can can be almost in some instances conflicting uh, to some of the things that we might've envisioned as being ideal when we started it. Has the thing, <laughs> the maverick entity, has it taken on a life of its own in any ways? Has it surprised you in any ways? Or do you feel like it's still very much dependent on, on Stilly and Bronco's influence from a culture perspective? Yeah, I feel like the answer to that is both, uh, which is weird because it, in a way we, we still influence uh, the culture quite a lot because obviously we, we, yeah. we come from that place of being, and we were very hands-on and, and we're, you know, with any startup, it's kind of, there are no job titles. It's really just, you know, everyone does everything to make, to make it try and work. And, um, sure. and but I, I do think now as, as it's grown and as uh, people are working even more remotely, I mean, we always had a, 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 I, mean, I spent a decade trying to get people into an office, which was, you know, <laughs> so when, when, when this came around, it, it wasn't really that difficult. Um, Forget all of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you, you've got different, uh, then you have new challenges, right? Which is how do you, yeah. how can you still stimulate culture? How can you still influence it when people are working remotely? And so you, you have to respond to that you know, with maybe more regular communication or different types of communication or getting clarity on values and having sessions and workshops and reminders. And so it's, uh, it's made us think about, uh, I think those two things as we've grown and as we are not seeing each other as often, we, we now have to be Mm. more conscious of how exactly are we going to inform that and to influence it with the time that we have here with our people and to, to make sure that it's institutionalized yeah. and that, and it's all about principles, right? Cause you can't mm-hmm. dictate the details. It's about 
you know, what are the guiding principles that are yeah, timeless? Parameters. That, yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is the direction we want to go in. These are the parameters you can play in. I go off and, and make the creative magic happen. Yeah. We'll be there sort of for support. And I think that's how we need to think of it. And so, and then also give people principles and, and frameworks for how to approach innovation, how to approach new projects, how to approach goal setting and how to think about launching new editorial products and, you know, how do we take product design thinking into account and how we take reader needs into account and how do we get better at minimizing risks on, on that and what metrics and data are important to us that, you know, we want to be. So it's now it's really about trying to instill these principles, which we kind of know you know, through years of experience and being those people responsible for it, uh, that stuff is, you know, it's all ingrained in, in us in our, yeah. the way we think. But now we have to reach in deep inside and pull it out and, you know, put them into words, um, written or spoken or actions. And so that, you know, people can can learn those, those behaviors and those principles so that, so that they can absorb them and, and run with them without having to, every five minutes check in to see whether this is okay or this is how we would do it or whatever it is to, you know. And so the more we can we can help create that kind of environment, the more people will grow, the more uh, agency they'll have, the more creative they'll be, the mm. more problems we can solve at a can fast, yeah. yeah, and Yeah, and then more problems they can solve at a faster rate so that we can mm. keep being this nimble organization that can do stuff and, and not sort of be held back um, the bigger we grow. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. It sounds like an exciting project. I, I want to ask Stilly a little bit about, go back to you mentioning uh, the topics of misinformation and disinformation, which were going to be difficult for us to steer clear of in this conversation, especially considering my interest in that space. Um, I get the sense, and you must correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys feel uh, very much like you are crusaders against some of those trends, uh, both in terms of the product that you're trying to build, but just in terms of the impact you're trying to have. And, and I think we've covered some of that. How do you think about those? First of all, do you differentiate between misinformation and disinformation? And if so, how? But how do you think about that as a trend? And in what sense are you are you combating it? Yeah, it's it's so big and it's coming from all sides. And sometimes it's by people who are on a disinformation crusade and other times it's people who don't even know that they're doing it and, mm. uh, you know, who's spreading it. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are just honest mistakes that are made and, and, and it goes out there, but it sows confusion and... Um, sure. you know, and it's, so, and, and it's, there's lies and then there's half lies and then there's really skilled practitioners who bake in, you know, the disinformation tactics into stuff that is half true and therefore more mm. believable. Mm. And, you know, we see the, the influence of 
you know, really well-resourced organizations who are trained in this kind of stuff, who are moving into daily lives and affecting the political outcomes around them. We saw with Brexit, the the influence of those, we saw with Bell Pottinger in this country, mm. what they were doing. And, you know, it's funny that with Bell Pottinger, especially that when we, you know, we were part of a team that exposed them, the Gupta leaks and what the, what they were doing and that they were being paid to yeah. sow this narrative into to the public domain, um, that that was probably not even in the top, 10 worst things that they did as an organization, hmm. but ended up being their downfall just hmm. because the way that their internal politics played out and there was a rift between the CEO and the chairman and the founder and, um, and you know, the cards came tumbling down for them. So, you know, hmm. and it, but it's just, and then on the other hand, you've got well-resourced international government agencies that are, that are behind some of this stuff because they have, vested interests in let's say a nuclear program in this country um and so they'll do anything from um push a certain narrative out there about you know nuclear energy to attacking journalists online and trying to discredit them or in Mm. some cases even catfish politicians you know um and which we've seen as well you know some politicians have been catfished into these right-wing extremist views and so it's just there's just so many different forms you can't actually pinpoint what it is and who's behind it and these fake accounts and so what you want to do in all of that and it's very hard i mean because for i'd say eight and a half of our 11 year existence um you know we were on average 60 days from hitting the wall that was it perpetually we were 60 Mm. days from hitting Mm. the wall and so how do you, in that kind of environment, attack such a big problem with so few resources when you're worried about yeah. uh, sustainability and being around and paying your team and then also kind of feeling like you're fighting this battle alone in, on a lot of fronts, you know? And, mm. so, and so those are massive. So you just kind of, in all that, well, what can we do? And focus on that because the problem is just so much bigger than us and, and you know, we can't do that. So, look, we're part of some international alliances now, people who are organizations that are sharing information around this is what we're seeing here in South Africa playing out mm-hmm. and watch out for these kind of tactics, these kind of actors. Mm-hmm. And so networks are starting to form and we're part of those networks now. But I think at the primary base, what we're doing is we kind of, we want people to know that, if you read it on Daily Maverick, and unless it's, you know, obviously an opinion piece, that it's true. There's a highly, you know, it's gone through enough rigorous process, editorial process to know that I can go to Daily Maverick and just check, like, what was the real, mm-hmm. the real deal here? You know, was this? And, and that's the kind of, you know, that's how we do our best to do it is just build a brand that people can trust and that they know that they can go to and not get salacious reporting. Or, you know, that we're going to throw a clickbaity headline that doesn't match up to the substance of the article. Or that we're going to sell out to an advertiser because, you know, they're, they're spending money with us and we're not going to write a hard-hitting article if it comes across our desk. Um, and yeah. we just, you can only do that by day in, day out, consistently sticking to your values and performing to your best without making uh, stupid mistakes I mean, obviously, you do make mistakes, but you don't want to, you know, you don't want to sure. write fitty, fake articles about 
you know, a certain unit that didn't exist, for mm-hmm. example. As a random example. Yeah. As a random example, or have the proprietor's face splashed across the front page of the uh, of the newspaper every second day uh, with, you know, <laughs> staff writing uh, bylines, staff writer bylines of anonymous, you know, investigative units. So it's just about in the sea of shit out there. Can I go to this place mm. that I can trust? And that's, I think, what we're trying to build. So I guess an extension of, of that conversation is if you think about all the world's editorial on a plotted against a political spectrum. And I know this, the spectrum is less of a straight line these days and, and more of a sort of wonky curve, but where do, where do you think about where your editorial work sits on the political spectrum? Do you consider yourself smack bang in the middle? Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's so hard to even define it by, you know, what is left and what is right uh, leaning anymore, because that's kind of all changed and the world has changed. And what is, you know, what does conservative mean? What does liberal mean? And some of those go so far left and so far right. The joke is that they meet up on the other side. On Um, the other side in the horseshoe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I like to think we're, we're sort of, we have a centrist view, but I think, you know, just by the nature of how damaging capitalism, extreme capitalism has been, and also in a country like South Africa where we see the inequality go to the highest levels that it is on earth, that, you know, mm. how can you have, like, how can you not have policies that, that are supposed to look after people when those people mm. never even have mm. a chance to play the, the game of capitalism? You know, and yeah. when when the playing fields are so uneven and the, it's so rigged, how can you not have something like that? And so I think we just we always just try to defer to being humane, you know, and what is the yeah. right moral yeah. thing, and not have like a oh we're a centrist or we're left leaning. It's like what is the right thing to do? You know, what what would be the yeah. right thing morally to to do and pursue in this? You know, and so we look at something like climate change and go well, like it doesn't matter what side of it. On, if, you know, if, if the sea level rises, displace hundreds of thousands of people. If um, crops are, are, you know, are smashed because of the rising heat. If um, all the, it doesn't matter what your views are. Like the the facts are that that's going to cause food shortages, displacement of people. It's going to cause more fires to happen. It's going to cause so, like. And you just go, well, the right thing to do is to bring that information, to highlight it, to allocate resources so that more people who can make, you know, important decisions know that that's, you know, that is now this massively important thing that we need to get behind. You know, if there's poverty and homelessness out there and, you know, we can do stuff about it to help those people, then shouldn't we be doing that, right? You know, it doesn't, it's in, in no one's benefit that we have poor people with, without homes, that without prospects. And so you just kind of, we just kind of think about, you know, what is the right thing to do for, you know, given all these uh, yeah. situations and, and forget the labels, right? Sure. I mean, it, that makes perfect sense to me, but I'm also aware that I have a left-leaning bias. So <laughs> as, yeah. as I'm listening to you, I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I'm also thinking, wow, but I must also be aware that um, that's part of my worldview that is in my framework. So I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. And there is a sense very much that from an editorial perspective, you sit very comfortably in that space. But I, I, I get the sense that you, from an opinion perspective, try and balance out some of the biases by allowing uh, really interesting views into the fray and editing and publishing those in a way 
specifically to counterbalance. I, 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 am I right, or did I read that incorrectly? Yeah, yeah. I think I think we wouldn't be serving our readers properly if we only allowed for opinions to come from one part of the the world's view, right? And uh, of I course, think it's important that we understand how people from different backgrounds or in different situations, uh, how they're thinking, right? And as long as they're not spewing lies, then we should take the time to consider what they're saying. So that's the next question then, and then we can kind of wrap a bow on it. But what opinions would you not allow to be published in either publication, I guess, mm-hmm. the digital or, or paper publication? What, what opinions aren't valid? Um, you know, there, there's some that, again, just go against a certain moral code. And so if someone is spewing lies, for example, or is inciting violence or is um, denying lit, you know, something that is a, a, a massively important um, movement or something, you know, so for example, if, you know, if we were publishing back in the day and, mm. you know, Tabo Mbeki's uh, spokesperson wanted to submit an op-ed piece on, uh, you know, or denying the link between HIV and AIDS. And so that would be a, a, a conundrum because you kind of mm. want to go, mm. well, that's complete and utter bullshit. What are you smoking? And, yeah. you know, uh, piss off. But then you kind of go, well, geez, it is the president of the country. And do you want, yeah. you know, people need to know that he's thinking like this so that yeah. activists sure. can go out, and, uh, go out and take it. But there was a, a, a columnist who was a regular with us and, you know, he was kind of getting piece you know bumped off and when we wouldn't publish it and there was a there was a straw right at the end where he was going to submit a piece about you know let's say price gouging on ppe equipment is is just market dynamics playing out and we should allow it you know mm-hmm. no fucking way like that's not <laughs> going to happen uh, and like you can take whatever like principles and theory and like that's just wrong it's just wrong that you know, in a time of, of crisis and, you know, emergencies and thinking about the welfare of humanity that, you know, we're going to let someone argue that you can inflate the price of stuff just because the demand is going through the roof. And, yeah, and then that there's a, a market theory that to justify your market dynamics to justify your decision. So it's kind of like, you know, there's a moral line that I think we, we think sometimes, you know, if someone came out and defended apartheid actions, for example. Like, why would you, how is that going to help people know more, know better? Um, just because they might be yes, deluded yeah. or they might have a certain view. And so, like, you know, and that's where skilled editorial teams and, and, and people who uh, are, you know, in short supply really need to be there because these are such difficult um, questions and, and uh, you know, and, and scenarios. And, you know, we've seen a couple of organizations that have been caught out where these opinion pieces have run out and they've been false or they've been done with the purpose of trying to catch out newsrooms or trying to incite certain views from happening or, you know, and I think that's the problem with uh, the platforms, the social media platforms is, you know, everyone thinks, you know, that, well, a lot of publishers think, well, you know, Google and Facebook have taken all the ad revenue and therefore, you know, we should be, you know, somehow compensated for that. And I said, it's fine. No one, we, no one has a divine right to to add revenues, and they built a better mousetrap, no, and course, that's great. Yeah. That's good for them. But you can't take the spoils without the responsibilities, 
right? And that's mm-hmm. what the problem that I have with the platforms is that there's no accountability when it comes to someone inciting violence or murder or rape on their platforms. There's no accountability when um, a president uh, suggests drinking bleach as an antidote to a, a virus, and that's allowed to go out mm. without sanction, for example. Um, and so yeah. all these things where we would be held accountable and we could be, uh, you know, we, there's an ombuds process and, you know, there are apologies and retractions and, you know, if you're part of that, but there are, there are uh, liabilities for publishing that kind of stuff. And so, and they don't operate under that. And I think that's the, the big thing, the big gripe that I have with platforms is that, you know, um, they don't participate in the accountability part of being a publisher. They're very happy to take the spoils of being a publisher, but not into the very messy, difficult and expensive process that comes with being a responsible publisher. Yeah. I, I mean, I wrestle a lot with that and, and my more, conservative leaning friends and I often have the debate around I can't raise my hands and flags and and object if I feel that something is offensive because it could be important information or it could be contrary information that proves a, a deeper point or all of these you know the defense of how do you define that thing and what is deemed to be uh, damaging and not and but the one thing that is very difficult to debate if you're a rational human on either side and whether you come from a for lack of a better phrase more socialist way of thinking about things or a more free market or capitalist way of thinking about things is this importance of symmetry of information and that that i think is a more healthy debate to have when it comes to those sorts of platforms is it's all fair and well saying yeah but you know willing buyer willing seller but is is the information symmetrical on both sides of the equation? Do I know what I'm buying? And that seems to be a, a debate that's not been had enough. When you consider that there are people with skills and resources who are able to gain that system. Yes. And yes. so that you end up with a very lopsided uh, uh, information diet being presented to you because of that. Mm. And in fact, you know, a bunch of, it's easy to get lies in front of people. And because you then consume some of that, then the algorithms then automatically adjust and then you start seeing a flood of that. And then and that's all you see. Um, and so the the mm. system isn't set up in a, in a, in a healthy way that is uh, with protections, you know, to help people get a, a more sort of holistic view of what's going on. So I want to I want to end off just by hearing a little bit of I guess our conversation started off with um, the launch of this exciting new paper and as you mentioned slightly contrarian maybe a little bit upstream in its thinking but you know when I think about your journey I I think all the way back to 2008 2007 and I guess the genesis of Daily Maverick or at least the preceding uh, preoccupation was Maverick magazine um, is there any relationship between the newspaper and that publication, are you learning lessons now, or rather, do you, have you taken uh, lessons from that experience, and are you applying them now in the way you launched the paper, or is this a completely new, unrelated, and has no relationship with that former print uh, project? Uh, how do you how do you think about the relationship between those two things? So I, I wasn't involved in the magazine uh, effort. This yes, is my yes, of course. Uh, first my first gig in media um, was when I met Brango just before Daily Maverick launched, and so I, mm. I you know spent the first couple of years just trying not to sound stupid. And um, so, but there, there's definitely a lot of that editorial 
vision and the name even comes from a column that I think uh, Branko used to write in Maverick Magazine 168, uh, mm. you know, reference to the number of hours in a week. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, we, we try and sort of pull some of those, again, going back to foundational principles and what this should be. And obviously a newspaper is different to make a glossy magazine and the timings are different. And we obviously learned to hell of a load a lot over the last decade and we've got a lot more data and we've got a lot more analytics. And I think that yeah. um, we've tried to keep um the foundational principle is the same, but what we got a lot better at doing is launching new products and new projects with a better framework so that we could de-risk that mm. and to mm. really set better goals when we're launching these new projects and to monitor progress against that and to think about how we can use data to inform some of the decisions that we're going to make. And I think the industry as a whole, why you know why the media industry has, has suffered is that it never really got good at innovation and building frameworks for innovation because for the better part of half a century, it really didn't need to innovate because it was so successful, high margin, mm, mm. highly successful, yeah. profitable um, uh, advertising businesses. But when the disruption came and it came for the entire industry across the globe in the space of a decade, we didn't have the skills and we didn't have the people and we didn't have the frameworks and the know-how how to deal with innovation. And so the default was to cling to what was making money and to try and protect that. And you can see a lot of the sort of fight back against uh, the social media platforms around the world is, is people basically just trying to hang on to hang on to the past a little bit and not really embrace this thing where we've got to innovate through the problems here. And I think that's what we're starting to get better at is um, having these frameworks for innovation and launching projects and products um, in a way that takes into account readers' needs. That isn't this three-year big project that's over budget uh, and then when mm-hmm. you launch to big fanfare and then you get there and you kind of go, oh, that sucks. Like no one really likes that, you know. And so thinking about how we can, you know, use minimum viable products and testing. And so, but it's a new, these yeah, are new A little bit more organic, we, yeah. And, and the new skills and new muscles and you've got to uh, learn how to do this and you've got to go and, you know, upskill yourself or, you know, work on that. And or eventually you bite your head so many times, you kind of go, are there better ways of doing this? And I think that's what we try to do with this, uh, with this newspaper and, and really helped us focus in, in the time that we were going. And each, each sort of phase, we were able to get more feedback and data that said, okay, yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah, you're on the right track. Okay, no, just adjust here a little bit, as opposed to just kind of working on this thing and one day rocking up and go, you know, a huge circulation across the country and you have no idea whether it's going to be successful or not. And uh, and I think that's, that's really helped us. Well, Stilly, as a reader, as a fan... Um, and as somebody who's followed your progress all the way through that innovation and those early years, I'm really, really grateful for the work you do and, and for the work that your team does. It is important work. It is, as you said, right up front, very impactful work and clearly is driven by something greater than just, um, margin. Um, and I think, you know, maybe never been a more important time. Uh, it feels like every time is incredibly important, but there's a sense that right now, there's such a hunger for knowing not just more, but but knowing better, and and uh, almost that we've lost the art of deliberate and difficult conversation. And so, thank you for fueling some of that and encouraging some of that. It really is a calling, and uh, I'm just really 
you know, grateful that there are people like you trying to sometimes even uh, against the odds uh, create the space for that. Yeah, thanks, Michael. We really do appreciate that kind of feedback because it is a it is a tough space and it's a, it's not incredibly tough. It used to be ludicrously tough and it's now incredibly tough. Um, <laughs> and and it is and we we still the industry is still losing people. We've lost a lot of people this year due to the shutdowns of COVID, due to you know organizations that aren't being led properly. And I think you touched on it right in the beginning that you know leadership is the thing that is going to make a difference between. Um, whether we're able to change our reality as our reality in this industry, our reality in this country, our reality in this world. And it, and it comes yep. down to, to leadership. And I'm, you know, I'm just so much more aware of it now because we can see that when we've been more conscious and we've grown and uh, we've been better leaders, the impact that it can have in our organization. And then all of a sudden that organization then has a bigger impact on the world. And so it kind of just comes back to, the impact that good leadership can have. And I just look around in our industry and in our country and in business. And I, I yeah, I just, uh, there's so many gaps of places where we really need, sure. yeah. we really need good people to step up and to be leading um, organizations and movements and governments. And uh, yeah, it just doesn't get enough attention and, and just not enough people skilled in, in, in this practice, right? And it's in, in this art, in this, um, in this practice that requires so much learning and effort and you mm, realize mm. it's a discipline, right? It's uh, and having yeah. coaches and having, you know, uh, exposure. Cognitive calories. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, so... Keep up the good work. Let me get, let you get back to that uh, newsroom. And I, yeah, just wish you luck for the last few weeks of the year and, and into 2021. I'm excited to see what will come out of the team uh, then. Thanks, Mike. It's been so good to chat. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.